Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 18 through 23. And at the bottom of the last page, you can see the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. And in Revelation, Jesus said, I am the Alpha, Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This passage here is more about the end, where God speaks through Isaiah about his final judgment. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our epistle reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 13th chapter. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, and from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is the gospel of the Lord. So everybody noticed too that the, uh, that the strings group from Mel's is with us this morning. So, uh, it's a really, really good commercial for the high school. If you're thinking about where you want to send your kids to high school, this is a good commercial for it. Make sure you stop back by there and say hi to them and thank you for helping us with worship this morning. Okay. 
So if you're visiting with us today, we're working our way through the book of Philippians, talking about Paul's message to the church there and what it means for us today. And we're right in the middle. This is right in the center section of the letter in Philippians. And there's this bit in the middle that Paul usually saves for the end. Paul frequently in his letters will talk about his travel plans, how his friends are doing, and usually saves that for the end. But for some reason in Philippians, he puts it in the middle. And the reason why I think uh, Paul puts it in the middle is because there's three, we've been talking about these, so this is, if you've been with us, this is not news for you. There's three key themes in the letter to Philippians. One is the importance of having, for Christians to have the humility to willingly embrace the suffering of Christ, to live the life of Christ's suffering, to, to not chase after a theology of glory, the notion that somehow because we're Christians, Everything is going to work great. But to know that because we're Christians, we are going to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ this is one of the key themes of Philippians. We're going to get back to it when we get to Philippians 3. Two, to embrace the humility that it takes to chase after the unity of the body of Christ, the unity of the body of Christ, by sacrificing our own individual desires for that of the whole. And then three... The message of the gospel is inextricably linked to one and two. The message of the gospel cannot be separated from Christians embracing the suffering of Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel cannot be separated from unity, from fellowship, from relationship within the body of Christ. This is how the gospel gets fleshed out. The gospel isn't primarily, the gospel, let me say it this way, the gospel is not an empty verbal message. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus is Lord, but if Jesus is Lord, that means that the church is going to rule and reign over creation in the same way that Jesus rules and reigns over creation, and that's from the cross. And that because Jesus is Lord, a new community is being created inside of him, a new royal priesthood, a new uh, a nation of followers who are one with each other because they're one in him. I believe, I think, this is I could be totally wrong about this because uh, uh, Paul doesn't signal, he just uh, writes... He, he shapes the way we think, not by uh, directness so much as uh, uh, by uh, the way he arranges his thought, the way he arranges his theology and explains it. I think that he's pulled this bit about Timothy that we looked at last week and Epaphroditus that we're going to look at this week into the middle of the book because Timothy and Epaphroditus very clearly exhibit these three things. Right. So we looked at Timothy last week. Let's not talk too much about that. But let's look at Epaphroditus. Uh, in our text. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. We'll come back to verse 25 in a minute. For he has been longing for you all. The reason why is because Epaphroditus is from Philippi. He's a member of the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi sent... When the church at Philippi heard that Paul was in prison, we know this from chapter 4, they sent a money, a, a gift of money and other things to Paul in Rome and they used Epaphroditus as their emissary to take that to Paul. Now that he's been in Rome, he misses his friends back in Philippi. He's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. We don't know too much about this, but we do know that at some point along the journey or when he got to Rome, Epaphroditus got very sick. He almost died, Paul's going to say here in a second. Indeed, he was ill, uh, near to death, right? But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him back to you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, 
and that I may be less anxious. There's that word anxious again. I, this is not what the sermon's about, but can I say something about it? Give me uh, 20 seconds. Uh, I, I got a bunch of feedback this week from several of you, a handful of you, maybe three or four of you who said that that, that was the part of the text that you remember from last week where he says about Timothy, he says, look, I, Timothy, I need Timothy with me because Timothy genuinely does not seek his own interest. Timothy genuinely seeks the interest of Christ. And I know this because nobody is truly, no, nobody truly has more anxiety for you guys than Timothy does. Timothy has anxiety for the health of the Christian church. Paul says here, I've got anxiety too. If Epaphroditus had died, I would have had a whole lot more anxiety. But if I can get Epaphroditus home to you, I'll experience less anxiety. And then in chapter 4, he's going to say, don't be anxious about anything. After telling us that I'm proud of Timothy because he genuinely is anxious for you guys, I am too. I am too, and I wish I was less anxious. And then he's going to tell us in chapter 4, don't be anxious. What are we going to do with this? I don't know. That's not what the sermon is about. Uh, go home and figure that out on your own. I'm just kidding. We can talk about it later if you want to, if you want to come to adult Bible study. But uh, Epaphroditus, his sickness has been a source of anxiety to Paul. So he says, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Uh, the reason why he has to tell the church at Philippi, we don't know this exactly. This A lot of this is guesswork. But some of the guesswork goes like this. Paul has to send Epaphroditus home and instruct his friends to welcome him back because it's possible that since Epaphroditus got really sick, he's kind of lingered on too long. And maybe some of the people in the church at Philippi are thinking, maybe Epaphroditus is, is goofing off in Rome. Maybe he's having a good time in the big city and kind of uh, messing around. And Paul is saying, no, no, he's late because he was extremely sick. And so when he gets home, I want you to welcome him back, because he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay, going back to these three, th- three, theme- three themes of embracing the suffering of Jesus, embracing the life of the Christian community, not the life of the Christian individual at the expense of the community, but the priority is the Christian community, and doing both of these things for the sake of the pro- gospel proclamation. Let's talk for just a few minutes about two things in here. Paul identifies Epaphroditus in several different ways, but I want to talk about two of the ways he identifies them, which highlights these principles, Okay. And the first is, he calls him a messenger. Look in verse 25, last line. He says that Epaphroditus is your messenger and minister to my need. So what does he mean? He means that Epaphroditus is the messenger from Philippi that brought the stuff to Paul. That was the gift, right? That took care of him financially while he was in prison. The word he uses, though, is the word apostle. He calls Epaphroditus an apostle. Now, Epaphroditus is not an apostle in the strict sense of the word in the New Testament. Epaphroditus is one of Paul's helpers. He's a member of the church at Philippi. But he's not somebody who knows Jesus personally in such a way that he has the authority to write down the words of Jesus in Scripture. That he has the authority to say direct messages from Christ to the church. He's not. Now, Paul is. Paul frequently refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ because Paul has met Jesus face to face. Paul, said, Paul gets messages from Jesus and can say, like, in, like he does in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm telling you this, not me, but it's the Lord who's telling you this. In what sense is Epaphroditus an apostle then? He's an apostle, not in the same sense that Paul is, but in the sense that he is passing on a message, not from Jesus to the church, but from the church 
to another member of the church. Let me say it this way. By the way, this sort of apostleship is absolutely necessary for the gospel to go forward. This sort of like devotion, like my, my life, your life, centering around the communal life of the church in such a way that it's my primary responsibility and your primary responsibility to minister to my needs, to take what is yours from Jesus Christ and to minister it to me. For me to take what Jesus has given me and to minister it to you. Let me give you an example in two sort of uh, weird phrases. One is this last line in, in verse 30, which if you don't know better, looks like a slam a little bit. He says to the Philippians, Epaphroditus risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The, the church at Philippi, you served me, but there's something missing in your service to me. Like it's not good enough is what it sounds like, right? But that's not what he means. Let me give you a parallel from Colossians 1, verse 24. Paul says this, Now I rejoice, Paul says, in my sufferings for your sake. Paul rejoices that he could suffer for the sake of the church at Colossae. And in my flesh, catch this, this is crazy. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the church. Let me say that again. Paul says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. Did you hear that? What's lacking in Christ's suffering? Anybody want to stand up and say anything? Like, no, no, I mean, Christ's suffering is perfect. There's nothing lacking in it, right? But Paul says in Colossians 1, there's something lacking in it. What's lacking in the suffering of Christ in Colossians 1? The answer is, is that the people in Colossae need to hear about it. Jesus dies on the cross. That's a perfect sacrifice for sins. But if nobody goes to the city of Colossae in Asia Minor and preaches that to them and lives it out, like Paul's saying, in the suffering in his own body, they're not going to know about the suffering of Jesus and it's not going to do them any good. Paul's, it's kind of a weird way to say it, but Paul is saying this. There's something lacking in the death of Jesus Christ and that's you guys getting it. Somebody has to communicate to you. That's what makes Paul an apostle. He takes the death of Jesus Christ and he communicates it to the church. Now, that exact same phrase grammatically is used back here in our text in verse 30. Look at it again. Epaphroditus risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, same analogy. What's lacking in the, the church at Philippi? What's lacking in their service to Paul? Certainly not the desire, not the gift. They raise a monetary gift to send to him. But what's lacking is, it doesn't matter how much they want to give Paul a gift. It doesn't matter how much money they have to give Paul. If there's nobody to take that gift to Rome to give it to Paul, it doesn't do Paul any good. And so Paul is saying he risked his life to fill up what was lacking. Does that, make, does that make sense? In that sense, Epaphroditus is an apostle. He's a messenger. He takes the good gifts that God has given him and his brothers and sisters in Philippi and communicates that to his brother in Rome. This is what God calls us to do, right? None of us are apostles in the capital A sense. But we are all messengers in the sense that the suffering of Jesus Christ does not happen outside of community. You don't get zapped with the gospel on your own at home. You get zapped with the gospel in Christian community. Our community in Glen Carbon is not going to change unless we become apostles in this sense. Unless we fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ by taking the sufferings of Jesus Christ to them, by being messengers to the community. So that's the first thing is he's an apostle, he's a messenger. Here's the second thing. And the last thing. He calls him a fellow soldier in verse 25. 
I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. That's a hard thing to talk about now. A lot of that is that the Christian church has had enough of triumphalism. I mean, the language of, you know, onward Christian soldiers against the backdrop of a history, 30 years war, crusades where Christians and Muslims are seeking to convert each other. If you're listening online, that's, I use scare quotes right there, to convert each other at the edge of the sword. To talk about being a soldier is a little bit off-putting, maybe even if you're not a believer and you're not familiar with the way the New Testament talks about Christianity in military terms. It can even be offensive. We should let Paul say what he means here. What does he mean by a fellow soldier? Paul never means we're going to go out and attack the non-believers until they either convert or bow down as our slaves. Paul never means that. Instead, what he means is that Epaphroditus like Paul himself. Remember, Paul is writing this chained to a Roman soldier, chained to one of Caesar's own guard, that that Epaphroditus, like myself, is willing to sacrifice my life for the cause of the gospel. This is a very soldierly thing to do. Harry, Harry right now, my son Harry, is reading Walter Lord's book, Incredible Victory, which is a story about the Battle of Midway in World War II. The Battle of Midway is the great turning point in the Pacific War. The the Japanese Navy is far superior to the American Navy at the beginning of World War II. Not just in equipment, but also in uh, technology, also in in tactics. They know that the aircraft carrier is the real deal. Long before the Americans get there, the Americans still think that huge floating battleships are going to win the war. The Japanese know that's not the case. The Japanese pilots and sailors are way far advanced technically than the American pilots and sailors. The Battle of Midway, I won't tell you the story because you actually should go look it up, is the turning point where against all odds, that all turns in the moment of, it's like six minutes. There's six minutes in the battle where the the, the scales completely flip. And from that point on, the Japanese defeat in World War II is pretty much secure. But what's what's uh, when you read that, what's shocking to a postmodern person like myself is these pilots, these American pilots who know we are going to die. We're going to take off from this aircraft carrier. Our torpedoes are all duds. None of them explode upon impact. Our our planes are all extremely slow. We're going to die, but it's going to have to be necessary to create a diversion for the dive bombers. And they get up there and they fly and they do die. None of them come home. One airman out of this whole torpedo squadron comes home. You remember the story, some of you remember the story of... uh, uh, they're actually criminals who've been uh, chosen to fight for the emperor, who Suetonius tells this story, who right before battle say, it's become a famous line now, Hail Caesar, we who are about to die greet thee. This is actually the soldier's mindset. And every one of you who's been in the military knows that in boot camp, they're going to drum out of you every little bit of, every little ounce of, like when I get into battle, I'm going to protect myself. Because you just can't fight that way. You have to go into battle knowing I'm dying here. I'm going to give up my life. And if you come out of it unscathed, that's bonus. If not, though, that's the only way you can fight. This is what Paul is saying Epaphroditus has done. Epaphroditus has said, my life does not belong to myself. I refuse to preserve my life. I'm going to give up my life for the sake of the gospel. This is what he means in verse 30 when he says, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to bring this gift to me. 
Epaphroditus has abandoned. Now, does this mean that we're going to die uh, for the sake of Christ? Uh, maybe yes, maybe no. But at, at the least what it means is the willingness to die has to be there. The willingness, the unwillingness to protect what is yours, to give up what is yours, the willingness to give up what is yours for the sake of the gospel has to be there. We have to be willing to die for the sake of the gospel. Now, you have to know too that this is, this is not simply a command. Die for the sake of the gospel. This comes, this section here in Epaphroditus comes in this section that explains Philippians 2 verse 5. Think this way among yourselves. The way of thought that you already have in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, be willing to give up your life. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not count God something to be grasped at, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of humans and being found in fashion as a human, being found in fashion as a slave, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It is only at that point, it is only at the point where Jesus has died for us. He has given you His mind. In union with Christ in your baptism, you now have the mind of Christ. That the command to give up our lives for the sake of the gospel makes any sense or is doable at all. If the gospel proclamation is going to work here in Glen Carbon, if we are going to be those who are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, if we are going to be those who are willing to give up our lives for the sake of the community, to abandon our own life, to be willing to die, for the sake of the community. It's only going to be because we're connected to the one who died for us in the first place. The one who gave up his own self, who abandoned his own prerogatives, his own glory, his own power, to suffer and die, to rescue us, and to rescue Glen Carbon. Amen.